It's uh, awesome to have everybody here. It really is. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of a news junkie, and so I, I'm constantly depressed. And uh, it's just rad to know that um, there's still folks who are interested in hearing um, who God is and what he's like and how, um, how trusting in him and following him can just make radical change. Um, in our lives and in our culture. And so I'm very blessed that you're here, and thank you. Thanks for being here. If you have been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been uh, in a, a series called A Fresh Look at the Old Book. And so even if you're not um, super familiar with uh, the Bible, uh, there's still probably some stuff that you re- recognize, right? So like, um, you may be aware that there was a, a musical called uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, or you saw The Prince of Egypt, which was another thing. I think that was about Joseph. Maybe it was Moses. But there's people that are kind of in the culture, and you, you, might, you might recognize them. And, and what's fun about this, uh, this series is we get to meet some of them and see what the text actually says about them. All, alternatively, if you are really familiar with the Bible, maybe there's some uh, ways of looking at these texts that are new, that are fresh. Uh, maybe there's something that uh, God has to teach us that we're, that's surprising. And we, you know, you've, you've heard these stories all your life, and, and how fun would it be to see them in a new light? And, and that's kind of what we're trying to, to do, to see if Scripture can, can talk in new ways. Uh, last week, we got introduced to Joseph. And as is the case with most of the characters in Genesis, he's not a great guy. Um, he was not a, not a hero last week. This week, he's going to turn it around. Um, maybe a few years uh, in slavery, I guess he maybe kind of had a come to Jesus moment, as it were, and, and started to turn things around. And so um, we're gonna we're gonna follow him. But uh, we are gonna talk about Joseph's transformation. But we're really gonna talk about that next week. This week we're gonna set the stage. We're gonna look at the world as it is. The Bible. People think that the Bible is this. Um, it's this fantastic, crazy thing because they focus on uh, some of the, the the wilder stuff, like you know the the plagues of Egypt things. But for the most part, the Bible is actually just really honest about what life is normally like for people. And as a result, the Bible is very much uh, engaged with things like um, you know violence, sex, jealousy, all the normal stuff that human beings have as part of their lives. And we're going to see that today. And, and I, 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 I submit that I think every person here is going to um, maybe see a new way to approach uh, relationships, um, to approach uh, especially intimate ones, although not necessarily, um, because I think uh, the world that Joseph lives in, uh, the Bible has, has, has shown us um, exactly what not to do. And so if we think uh, maybe about the opposite of that, we'll, uh, we'll see a better way to live. And so um, I invite you to uh, read with me. Um, it takes two. This is uh, Genesis 39. It's a pretty long text. Uh, this is from the Common English Bible. I like this translation a lot. It's, it's, um, pretty, it's very accurate um, and, and also uh, easily readable. So let's do it together. When Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, Pharaoh's chief officer, the commander of the royal guard, an Egyptian, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. His brothers, remember, had sold him into slavery because they had a very dysfunctional family. Yahweh was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and served in his Egyptian master's household. His master, Potiphar, saw that that Yahweh was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful. Potiphar thought highly of Joseph, and Joseph became his assistant. He appointed Joseph head of his household, put everything he had, everything, under Joseph's supervision. 
And from the time he appointed Joseph head of his household and of everything he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptians' household because of Joseph. Yahweh blessed everything he had, both in the household and in the fields. So he handed over everything he had. He didn't pay attention to anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. The Hebrew there is like, uh, it's, it kind of repeats. It's like he was very beautiful and super good to look at. So, so uh, and for, uh, I have a couple of um, visual aids today. So what I've done is I've taken pictures of myself through the years. And I'll be using those uh, to help give an example of. Sometime later, his master's wife attra- became attracted to Joseph and said, sleep with me. He refused and said to his master's wife, With me here, my master doesn't pay attention to anything in his household. He's put everything he has under my supervision. No one is greater than I. He's denied me nothing except for you since you're his wife. How could I do this terrible thing and sin against God? Every single day she tried to convince him, but he would not agree to sleep with her or even to be with her. One day when Joseph arrived at the house to do his work, none of the household's men were there. She was. She grabbed his garment, saying, lie down with me. But he left his garment, his jacket, in her hands and ran outside. And when she realized that he had left his garment in her hands and ran outside, she summoned the men of her house and said to them, look, my husband brought us a dirty Hebrew to ridicule us. He came to me to lie down with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me raise my voice and scream, he left his garment with me and ran outside. She kept his garment with her until Joseph's master came home. And she told him the same thing. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us to ridicule me came to me. And when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment with me and ran outside. When Potiphar heard the thing that his wife told him, this is what your servant did to me, he was incensed. Potiphar took him and threw him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were held. While um, most of us probably don't have people of the opposite sex throwing themselves at us at a regular, regularly, um, isn't it weird that you know, you read this story and you're like, yeah, I could, I could see that. And then kind of there's a sort of a question kind of rises up. How do things like this happen? Because they do. We all know somebody or we've experienced something um, similar to this. And, and it's become even more prominent now with the, uh, the, the Me Too movement, um, sort of bringing sexual assault, sexual harassment into um, the sort of the wider eye of people. We're now even more aware as more and more stories come forward of people who have been um, engaged or uh, had sexual violence of some kind perpetrated against them. What's funny, when we read this story, sort of the, um, like I said, I do have some pictures of myself too. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're sort of a, this is, this is not recent. This is from uh, my early 30s <laughs> when I was doing a stint as a pool boy. And... Uh, and we read the story, and there's sort of like this, this kind of, it, you kind of get this feeling of like the sort of the, the predator housewife, like running around, there's innocent Joseph with his shirt off, like, you know, cleaning the pool. Um, and, I, and, and you might wonder, how does this stuff get going? How do we, how do we actually end up in a place like this, right? Um, is, did it just sort of happen out of the blue? 
right? Was it like, like Joseph was doing his thing and then, and then bam, you know, I, I want to suggest that actually this text and the Bible in general is very aware that it actually takes two to tango. And I want to, I want to, I want to go through the text with you. I want to show you that, um, you know, Potiphar's wife, she's not doing good stuff here and I don't recommend it. Uh, it's a really great way to destroy relationships, but I don't think she was operating in a vacuum. First, uh, yes, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Like I said, <laughs> he was beautiful and good to look at. Uh, it was people, people came from far and wide to just look at his, his body. All right. But notice this. Notice this. Sometime later, Potiphar's wife became attracted to Joseph. And uh, really, the Hebrew therefore became attracted. It's like, uh, it's, it's passive. It's like her eyes, her eyes were, uh, were like locked or they lifted to Jake, uh, to Joseph. So like she's walking around doing her thing, and after a while, um, J- Joseph's been put over the household, he's running the show, and after a while, some time passes, maybe even years, at a certain point, her eyes just kind of And you know how this is, if you've ever been attracted to anyone. You know that uh, you're walking along, and, and you're, you enter a room, and it's like everything stops, and a sort of, like a heavenly light drops on this person, and you're like, whoa. And, uh, and, and it's crazy. Everything else kind of recedes in a different, and, and is that really, I mean, it's not like you're sitting around being like, I'm gonna find someone to be attracted to today. No! You're just kinda, you're, you're doing your thing, you're looking around, and, and bam! It, it hits you. It, it grabs you. It's not, she wasn't, you know, she's not. Well, we'll put it this way. She's probably looking around, but notice that it's, it's something that happens over time. Okay? She doesn't, she doesn't walk around and, and, and look for Joseph. In fact, it seems as though something's happened in her life. Something's gone on to Potiphar's wife, such that she's now thinking maybe about looking around. This is the first thing in your note sheets, Um, isn't it? Yes. Circumstances cause Potiphar's wife to begin looking around. Again, not defending Potiphar's wife. She made some very bad choices, and that's not the way we handle um, illicit attraction, but... Presumably something's going on, and I want to show you what it is. I want to show you. Uh, Let's let's look back uh, at the text. Um... He appointed Joseph head of his household and put everything he had under Joseph's supervision. Potiphar, uh, so Potiphar brings Joseph in as a slave. He finds out that Joseph's good with numbers, that he has a knack for making money. Um, and that sounds kind of great to us, like uh, this sort of the dream, right? Um, you're, you, you're running your business or whatever, and you bring somebody on. It's like there's an A-class worker. They get it done. They're very competent, very efficient. You promote them rapidly. They're right underneath you. You're reaping all the profits. They're doing all the work. It's a great deal. This is the American dream. We may uh, sort of gloss over head of the household. But if you've been with us any length of time, you know that when the Bible says household, uh, and it's talking obviously about the ancient world. This is ancient Egypt. And in ancient Egypt, when you say household, and especially Potiphar, who's uh, high up in the, in the kingdom, that really means palatial estate. In fact, if you want to think of what a household might be in our terms, or close to our terms, you might think of, say, a plantation owner in the 1830s who also happens to be the governor of Georgia, okay? That would be sort of the, um, kind of the, the closest analog we would get to who Potiphar is. He's a guy who, um, he's got massive fields. We saw that in the, uh, in, the, in the text. He has fields, and he's also got a business that's built on those fields. Everything operates out of his palatial estate. Moreover, a palatial estate does not, it's not uh, Potiphar, his wife, and their kids, 
Um, a, a household is Potiphar, his wife, her second niece's friend's uncle, and all of their pets, and also some people that they uh, have hired on as servants who um, help with the business, who live on the property, either in the massive uh, main palatial estate or in other servants' quarters. It's, uh, it's an extended family. It's everybody involved. It's a very large organization. When we say household, it, it, it's... Basically, in the ancient world, if you, uh, if you wanted to survive because it was a kind of a subsistence living, you had to attach yourself to somebody uh, like a wealthy patron of sorts. And so this guy Potiphar is that. He runs these huge fields. He has oodles of slaves and servants and businesses on the side. And it's his responsibility because he's the, the Potter familius, the man of the house, patriarchal society. It's just the way it was back then. Because of that, it's his responsibility to oversee everything. He's the boss. It's his name that makes the whole thing run. He's the owner. In a way, it's his responsibility to be the, the one who everyone looks up to. He's the one who's in charge. And what he's done is he's basically said, yeah, I'm done. Joseph, you take care of it. And so all the people he used to report to Potiphar be like, boss, I do, should I do this, that, or the other thing? He's like, meh, go talk to Joseph. And Joseph basically supplants him as the main guy. Uh, it, go on, I think Joseph actually reiterates this. He, he, he says he's trying to get Potiphar's wife uh, away from him. And he, he's like, my master doesn't pay attention to anything in his household. He's checked out. Um, he's kind of abdicated his responsibilities. I think I do have a couple of pictures of me from different points in my life. Um, the one on the, uh, on the left is more recent. That's kind of, I've sort of given up um, all like effort and so just kind of lazing the days away, drooling and eating potato chips while I watch uh, binge-watch shows on Netflix. It's uh, really attractive. But earlier in my life, um, by the way, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it's true. Those, who, those of you who are older who think that uh, Sean Connery was the best James Bond, you're wrong. Um, I, I know that you have sentimental attachment to him, but when Casino Royale came out in 2007, it was game-changer. 2006, whenever it was. Total game-changer. Daniel Craig, um, by far the most engaging Bond ever. And I'm not even saying his movies are that good. I'm just saying, looking at that guy, you're like, yeah, he's a super spy. He's got that thing figured out. Um, why is that, by the way? Why is it that Daniel Craig's such an awesome James Bond? If you, you look at that picture and you can see it, Daniel Craig, James Bond, is a man on a mission. Like that guy, I mean, he's looking right through you. He's not paying attention to you. He's using you as a means to an end. Like, he, he's, he's gonna save the world because whoever, Spectre or whatever, is gonna blow stuff up. This guy is 100% committed. He's all in. All he's thinking about all the time is how to complete the mission and save the world. I mean, it's not even really ambition. It's that he's just passionate about his work. The guy loves being an assassin and like, he loves gambling. He loves doing all the things, drinking martinis, whatever it is that James Bond does. And he, he loves the life. He's super into it. He's all out. He's focused. He's engaged. And you know what happens? Everybody around him responds to that. 
You notice this, especially in Casino Royale. You watch this movie, and watch how in every single scene, like it doesn't matter if it's male, female, old, young, everybody is constantly responding to James Bond's singular focus on achieving his mission. They look at it, and they're basically in awe. Like, who is this guy? He's basically a machine. And everyone kind of respects, and they're like, wow. And notice, every girl is like, oh. There's just something about his commitment to his work, to his, his project. It's inspiring and a little bit attractive. Doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a super spy to be attractive. Uh, thank God. Um, I uh, remember when I was in uh, Japan, the first time I went to an arcade in Tokyo. Uh, in Japan, arcades are still a thing. And uh, my friends uh, wanted to go to an arcade. Uh, this is like 10 o'clock at night. This is like a nightlife thing you do in Japan, at least 15 years ago. I can't speak uh, to the present day. But I went in here, and it was lit up, and it was awesome. And they had a game. It's called uh, Dance Dance Revolution. And this game is basically like it's a video screen with like, people like dancing on it. And then you've got uh, like some... It's like hopscotch. You're supposed to press, like, hit where they're hitting, and you're also supposed to do the dance moves. It's a stupid game. It's really silly. And uh, and it's really fun to watch, too, because people are like, it's great. I'm cool, so I'm, like, in the back, like, oh, yeah, all right. Um, This guy, this guy walks in. He's, like, maybe 22. It's 10 o'clock at night. He's got blackout sunglasses on, leather jacket, collar popped. He has one shakuyen, that's uh, like a dollar-ish. And he, just one, no other coins. Walks up to Dance Dance, pops it in, and begins. And I, I'm like, okay, whatever. Things start to quiet in the arcade. He's like... Yeah. Pretty soon, um, nobody's playing any other game. There's a crowd around Dance Dance Revolution. He's still going... Just beating all the things at high score. Pretty soon, two very attractive young Japanese women are at the two sides of the screen going, Oh, uh, you're so great. Oh, this is wonderful. So skillful. Wow. I'm like, what the heck is going on in this culture? What is going on? This is crazy. He beats the game in one, one, one dollar. He beats the whole thing. Walks out with an entourage. For dancing one, for dancing a game. Dance, dance. I was like, man. And at that moment, I realized something. It doesn't matter what you do. It's having that, like, that confidence and that commitment, that passion. People respond to that. Even for something as stupid as a dancing video game. And what happens when you have something like that? You're the, you're like two, three in Egypt. You're running the show. You've, you've got this huge estate. You're in Pharaoh's confidence. You're working with him. You're a government official. You're running the stuff. You're making the money. And then one day you're like, that's it. I'm done. And you check out. And you find the 22 year old hot guy and you give it all to him. And you spend your days Eating chips and watching Ozark. Well, that's step one to uh, driving your wife into the arms of another man. It doesn't have to be wives. It could be husbands, too. Uh, I know plenty of people who, um, where it kind of works the other way. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. People respond to passion. 
And when you stop it, when you give it up, people stop responding to you. Potiphar gives up all work and projects, hands them over to the young upstart. And after a while, his wife begins to wonder, I mean, what is he doing? And she starts to look around. Let's go back to the text. I love this. The Hebrew here is real weird. It's like literally, like woodenly translates to, um, and nothing of his thought were his thoughts but his bread. Right? Like, the, it's this picture of Potiphar, a guy who used to be involved in all kinds of things, gets to the point where the only thing on his mind is um, food, drink, and really this is probably metaphorical. It's just having a good time, basically. He's completely given up on anything of value, and now all he's doing is thinking about the next meal, the next entertainment, the next whatever. Um, I think we have, do we have a little more text? <laughs> so this dude, he's like, he's like, he's completely checked out. And uh, remember, you know, he, he basically works from home. I mean, there are times when he has to go wait on Pharaoh. But for the most part, you, in the ancient world, you pretty much stayed in your household to accomplish the tasks that you have to accomplish. And, and for, for Potiphar, that was probably the same thing. Notice that every single day, his wife is prancing around the house trying to attract Joseph. How does he not know what's going on? Like, how, I don't care how big your mansion is. Like, if, if the person that you're living with is actively trying to seduce somebody, you're probably going to clue in at a certain point if, if you're paying even a modicum of attention to that person. So if you're living with a man and he's constantly, like, you know, chasing skirts, like, you're probably going to figure that out. Unless you don't care. Unless you've, you're off doing whatever it is you do. It's maybe even, it's also, it's, the, the, the text is ambiguous here. It might be the case that, that Potiphar is well aware of the fact that his wife is going after other men. He might not care at all. The, the, the text does not um, push us one way or the other. I, in fact, I tend to think that's what's going on. That he actually is like, she's, she's bothering me, so I hope that she you know, has fun with the servants or something like that. That's not necessary, and, and you can read it both ways. But, like, it's possible. And, and, and if it's not, if that's not what's going on, then he's, like, the most ignorant, like, uninterested man ever. That he can't pick up on the signs. Step two in Potiphar's um, desire, his, his move to drive his wife into the arms of, of another man, is that he ignores her. He either uh, just doesn't care and says, go do what you do, I don't care. Or he's like so studiously focused on his own stuff that he just completely misses it. Either way, he's not attuned to what his wife's up to. Last but not least in the text, this is, uh, I love the way that this goes down, right? So first, we're told none of the household's men were there on the, on the, the fateful day. Let me just, okay. <laughs> Even in the contemporary like world, right? Say that you're like, I don't know, a secretary of state. Something like that. That's kind of where Potiphar is at, right? You're secretary of state. Um, 
As a result, there are people who are constantly around you. They have uh, dark sunglasses and suits. They, uh, there's like a bulge right here in their j- breast jacket, and there's also one down by their ankles, and they have little things that go in their ears all the time. Um, and, and presumably, no one's going to mess with you or yours because they're always around, right? Uh, moreover, everywhere you go, you have aides and lieutenants, uh, men and women who are constantly uh, surrounding you and making sure that you and yours are taken care of as they follow their, uh, their, your various uh, decrees and rules and trying to take care of things. The idea that there were no men in the household is absurd. In order to get no men in the household, uh, what Potiphar's wife had to do is she had to kick out all the bodyguards. Uh, she had to take care of, like, and we're talking probably 50 to 100 people here. Uh, it doesn't say anything about the women because in the ancient world, again, patriarchal society, no one would believe um, a maid servant's um, testimony in a court of law. So it's really important for her to get the men out of the way, but the women doesn't matter. Where did these guys go? You've been tasked with, you know, defending the life of the Secretary of State and his family. And his wife is like, hey, could you um, leave for a while? Do you go down to the pub and, like, start? No, you stand right outside the door and you're waiting. If you're responsible for making sure that all of Potiphar's stuff is taken care of, that his life is in good order, and his wife tells you to leave, you leave, you do what she says because you have to obey, but you don't go far. You're, you're right there in case anything happens. Notice what she does. She waits until she sees the, uh, the garment in her hands. She's like, yes, now I've got evidence, right? And then she summons the men. She's like, oh, no, don't, 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 don't go yet. We're still working on that. Uh, she summons the men. She's like, hey, guys, can you come on in? They're right outside the door. They watched him run off. They know exactly what's happened. And so she looks at them and she says, do you guys know what just happened? And they're like, no, why don't you tell us? And she goes, um, my husband brought one of those dirty foreigners, one of those Hebrews, a Jew. He tried to, tried to seduce me. So I screamed. Remember? And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. we remember. Uh, later on, she says the, the same thing to her husband. Um, you know, you brought uh, one of those dirty, dirty foreigner, dirty Hebrews to ridicule me, to make humiliate me. This is, uh, if you're familiar with the, the famous uh, book, To Kill a Mockingbird, this is basically the same story where um, a hated minority, in this case a Hebrew uh, person, in the case of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, the racist South, um, an African-American man, both are accused of rape. Um, in the case of To Kill a Mockingbird by a white woman, in the case here, by um, Potiphar's wife. In To Kill a Mockingbird, everybody around automatically believes the white woman because it would be wrong in their culture, because of the racism, to believe um, Boo Radley. Only one man stands up. His name is Atticus Finch. He's a lawyer, and he takes Boo Radley's side. He believes him. He trusts him. He recognizes that he was not guilty of the rape and goes to defend him. He stands up to the entire community. The community makes his life and the life of his children hell because they cannot abide the idea that one of those outsiders, one of those dirty, you know, no good, no, marginalized, they cannot be believed or responsible. We can't 
we can't countenance that. In the same case, right here, Potiphar's, all of his men, they all know exactly what's happened. There's no secret here. They all know what's going on. But because it's, we're talking about an oppressed minority, and because their mistress has told them not to, to say this, they, they keep their mouth shut and they all agree, yes, yes. The, 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 the dirty Jew, uh, tried to rape you and you screamed and, and gosh, thank goodness we came just in the nick of time to protect you. The difference between To Kill a Mockingbird and Potiphar's story is that in To Kill a Mockingbird, one guy stands up to protect the person who's being abused. Potiphar does not have one man, woman, or child in his entire household who will tell him the truth. Not one person is willing to stand up and say, dude, I gotta tell you, your wife is lying. Also, you're a terrible husband. You're letting your household fall into total disarray. You used to be great. I used to respect you. I used to love you. And you have let it all go down the drain. Not one of his people is willing to tell him that. And so as a result, the household continues to fail, continues to fall apart. Joseph's sent off to prison. It's not like his marriage is any better. You think his, his wife's happy because she, she got a guy thrown in a pit. She doesn't care. She's still miserable. All because Potiphar does not put around himself people who will tell him the truth and hold him accountable. Yeah, we, um, especially if you uh, read from a, sort of a male perspective, this story kind of looks like um, looks like this uh, bored housewife who's you know picking on um, the minority guy. Really, what's going on is you have a dysfunctional household because you know what it takes two to tango. Interesting fact. Um, in the ancient world, uh, in most societies in the ancient world, uh, women were not given any, um, any rights for divorce. Uh, that was exclusively a male privilege in the ancient world um, to dismiss uh, your wife. The, uh, the, the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, were the only ones who had a provision in the law that allowed women to go free from a man who was abusive. This is in Exodus 21, if you're interested. It's a, it's a moment where, there's, where God says, look, if you have a wife, you're responsible. And he even says, even if your wife was a slave and you purchased her to make her your wife, it doesn't matter where she comes from. She could go from the dregs of, of society all the way to the top. You owe her three things. You owe her food, clothing, and shelter, and you owe her love and affection. And if you do not provide those things, she can leave and be free and have her reputation untarnished. Potiphar's wife didn't have that. Just to show you how crazy human beings are, by the time of Jesus, uh, the Pharisees had taken this law that provides for um, uh, freedom for abused women, and they had... um, you gotta love men. <laughs> they uh, they had come up with like a, a series of laws to show um, what exactly constitutes neglect. Like how little attention do you have to give your wife before she has the right to say that it's it's too little. Um, how 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 little amounts of food must you give before she has the right to say ah oh, that's that's too little. The, the rabbis and the Pharisees of Jesus' day um, had gone and taken this, this 
moment where God's trying to protect uh, women from situations like Potiphar's wife, and, and they've, they've drilled it down so that you can, you can you know, find your loopholes and still treat your wife like garbage, um, and, and, and she won't have the opportunity uh, to seek redress. Uh, some of us uh, come today and we've uh, been through divorce. There are people here who've been, who are divorced. Um, you've been a part, it's not even divorce, a, a relationship that's um, completely collapsed. You've been um, you're living together or whatever and things fell apart. Um, and, and, and what I'm suggesting up here is, yeah, it takes two to tango. Uh, there's no, there's no fa- failing a relationship where it's just on one side Everybody, there's, there's guilt, there's responsibility that goes all the way around. Um, and you hear something like this, and part of it, you're like, yeah, that other person definitely did all that to me. I was right to get the heck out of there. Or you're like, yeah, I kind of, um, maybe I was a little responsible for how some of those things shook out. Either way, um, we don't come to Scripture uh, to, to just be condemned. Right? We don't come to Scripture just to be like, oh, well, I'm the worst. That can happen, and it can um, prick our consciences and our hearts. But really, the, the story of God is, is that there's second chances. That um, what happened in the past, you can't change it. It has implications uh, for the present and the future, but it's, it's gone now. It's done. And the question is not what happened then. The question is what's going to happen now. And one of the things that we can do when we look at texts like this, we can say, hey, that happened in the past. That was then. But hey, now I have an opportunity in a, a new relationship or a, a you know, new marriage or whatever to change the way things go. And I can look at some of the mistakes that were made in Scripture and say, like, I'm not going to make those anymore. I'm going to change. I'm going to turn those things around. I am going to make sure to pay attention to my wife and I am really, uh, or my husband, and I really am going to try and, you know, be engaged in projects and, and really try to, to, to have passion and confidence in the things that I do. Those are all, that's a valid way. Don't come away being like, I'm the worst. The leader guy just made me feel guilty and is a downer. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not our story. Our story is, yeah, human life is messy. Yeah, there are bad things that go on. But you know what? Jesus didn't die so that we could stay messy. He died so that we could be forgiven, that we could be washed clean, changed up, transformed. There is a future. Some of us uh, come here today and we're you know, either in relationships or in marriages that are um, could, that maybe are, we're worried that they might be falling apart in some respects. Some of the spark is, is lost. Some of the stuff that we remember as being a part of, of the, the joyous, good early days, and stuff's, it, the, the spark is out. It's, we're basically we're roommates at this point. And there's bitterness that's welling up. If that's you, if that's where you're at, then wow, here's a couple of tips. And these aren't even the, the, this is just the beginning of ways that we can start to change ourselves so that we can become great partners and lovers. There's some of us uh, here today who um, are alone. Um, You're like, oh, a marriage sermon? What, 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 What about me? One of the things I think that's interesting is, and I've been trying to say this, is that really this text is not just about marriage relationships. It's not just about, like, you know, husbands and wives. It's Honestly, it's about people. It's about what it takes to be 
healthy, happy people. Potiphar's wife, I mean, you don't have to be um, married to be alone and ignored. In fact, a lot of people who aren't married feel alone and ignored. They feel like they're the ones like, everyone else is married, they've all got, they're all living the dream, you know. Honestly, marriage um, is actually pretty challenging. I can testify to that. Uh, it's not all sunshine and roses. And, but if you're sitting there and you're, and you're like, oh man, I've just been left behind and really the only hope for any kind of you know, happiness and joy in my life is to get married. That's ridiculous. That's not, no. In fact, the Bible, the New Testament, if anything, praises and celebrates singleness. You have opportunities. And, and, but here's the deal. In the midst of that, though, you also need to be loved. And one of the things that I hope that our congregation can do is we can be a place where it doesn't matter if you're married or not, you know, young, old, whatever. If you're feeling lonely, I want this to be a place where we don't feel lonely. Come on out. Watch us blow up some pumpkins with that trebuchet. It's going to be sick, dude. And, uh, and, and hopefully, while that's happening, maybe someone um, will sit down with you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, and maybe some of those feelings of I don't fit or I'm alone um, can be addressed. Because married or not, it ain't right to be going solo. Some of you jerks out there have the best marriage ever. You're so happy. You wake up every morning, you look over like, thank God! I, I do too, uh, you know, a lot of time. But sometimes, I'm just saying, there are some of you out there just happy, healthy, flourishing Man, would, would, you, would you guys maybe just, like, mentor somebody? Would you take someone under your wing and be like, hey, uh, it's not perfect, but we're awesome, and let me help you. <laughs> like, I can see that you're falling apart. Um, instead of withholding all the secrets to loving and being loved, I'm going to let you in. <laughs> like, like, why don't you come check things out over here? And it doesn't have to be like a patronizing, condescending thing. It can just be like, hey, let's hang out. And, you know, because human beings, like, you start hanging out and you start talking about your relationships and what's going on. And there's ways that we can share and bring people, bring our, our friends and family along so that we can all sort of start to participate in some of the, the better ways of doing a relationship instead of wallowing in, in, in the ways that are, that are hard and tough. My goal, the, we'll know that we've achieved it if I don't have to do any more marriage counseling. All right? If I don't have to ever counsel anyone else on their marriage, I will, I'm going to give you a gold star and be like, well done. You guys crushed it. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I actually don't do that much um, because uh, I know that most of the people here are really um, conscious of, of trying to do right by relationships. Um, but, but, on that note, um, if you do feel like your relationship needs um, a little tune-up uh, and you want to come in and bounce some ideas, I'm happy to meet with you uh, and eventually maybe send you to somebody who knows what they're talking about uh, to help you. Because, um, man, imagine how Joseph's story would have been different if Potiphar and his wife had made those changes and done some of that stuff and worked through some of those things. Imagine what would have happened for them, their family, and even the story of Israel. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, 
I just pray a special blessing over our relationships here at Christ Bible Church. Uh, for those who are married, um, those who are not married, uh, those who are in relationships, um, just any place where intimacy is real, God, I just ask a special blessing of health and, and provision um, for that. I pray, Lord, that uh, we will be people who um, really are seeking to, to be passionate and to be engaged, not ignoring one another, not walking off alone, but instead um, loving and living with each other in the light of your grace. Uh, for any um, relationships here today that are wounded, God, I just I ask um, for healing and for redemption uh, through uh, your spirit, through um, help and aid from those around us. Just uh, heal the breaches, God, and, and, and sew up the cracks and, and give us um, renewed love and vision for each other. All this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.